Frizzy Watch Radio. Watch Radio. With Dominic Frisbee. Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm your host, Dominic Frisbee, and this is our second program. Today we look at gold, the metal of choice for conspiracy theorists and nutters. Firstly, the disclaimer. Nothing in this program constitutes advice to do anything. I'm talking to people who have strong views and companies to sell, but it's up to you to do your own research and make up your own minds. On today's show, we talk to the heads of three mining companies, Vitz Gold in South Africa, Gold Resource Corporation in Mexico, and Kazakh Gold in Borat's favorite country, Kazakhstan. We also talk to our favorite trader, Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub. But first off, we speak to the lord of the gold bugs himself, James Turk. And I'm warning you now, his vision of the future isn't exactly rosy. Commodity Watch Radio. So with me now is James Turk, the author of the excellent book, The Coming Collapse of the Dollar and How to Profit from It, and also the founder of Gold Money. James, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dominic. It's a pleasure to be here. I say with me now, I'm in London, James is in New Hampshire, and uh, you, the listener, are wherever you are in the world. So we're currently experiencing the, the beauty and the joys of modern communication. Now, your book is called The Coming Collapse of the Dollar. Are you so sure it's going to happen? Yeah, uh, the U.S. is spending more than it's earning. It's borrowing more than it's saving. Those trends cannot continue. Uh, and there's no change in the policies coming out of Washington or the Federal Reserve to put the dollar on the right track. So we're heading toward a, a collapse. It's going to come sooner rather than later. When you say collapse, what does that mean? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I measure the dollar in terms of purchasing power and would compare it to other things, other forms of money. Uh, so, for example, uh, gold has been maintaining its purchasing power. An ounce of gold still purchases the same amount of crude oil as it did 50 years ago. The dollar, though, has not. We look at the price of crude oil and it looks expensive, but the reality is that the dollar is losing purchasing power. That's what I mean by a collapse. Hasn't it already collapsed? Yes, but my point is it's going to start picking up momentum because the U.S. has never been in such a precarious financial situation before. You know, back in the 70s, we were still the largest creditor nation. Now we're the largest debtor nation. We didn't have all of the debt today that we did uh, uh, back in the 70s. Uh, we have this uh, sword overhanging the banking system, the financial derivatives, and that's a potential tie bomb. All of these things could have seriously negatively affected the uh, the dollar and you know that's why I expect the dollar to continue falling relative to gold or to put it another way the price of gold is going to continue to rise. How will this collapse affect your ordinary Joe on the street in London or your on the street in uh, New York? How will it affect them? If you're prepared for it, you'll be able to get through it. It's the exact same thing like the Great Depression. Um, not everybody suffered. If you're prepared for it, you're able to continue your life and live through reasonably well. If you're unprepared for it, you're going to have potentially serious uh, uh, difficulties, just like a lot of people did during the Great Depression. That was also a period of monetary turmoil, and what I expect is another period of monetary turmoil. 
And the best way to prepare for it today, just like back then, is to own gold and silver. Do you think the magnitude of what is around the corner is the same as the Great Depression? Well, when you're getting to that kind of degree of magnitude, it's hard to say which is going to be worse. Um, I, I tend to think, though, that it's going to be worse this time around because the problems are much more severe. Um, also, governments today are much more involved in uh, command economy type decisions, uh, command monetary type decisions. And as a consequence, I think that's probably going to make the economic and monetary fallout to be much worse rather than just letting the market get on with its own uh, and resolve the problems in their own way. You're a great inflationist, am I right? You, you think uh, we're experiencing and we're going to experience further inflation as opposed to deflation? To answer that question, we have to talk about what currency we're, we're referring to. When we talk about dollars, yes, uh, the dollar is going to be inflated away. But when we talk about gold, we're going to see a great deflation. In other words, the prices of goods and services are going to go down in gold terms. I see. And, and, and what's your view on, uh, on the good old pound? You know, it's flirting with $2 to the pound, uh, and it's benefiting from a flight out of various currencies, to a certain extent, a flight out of the euro, a flight out of the dollar. You know, people are looking for other places to put their money. Uh, it's easy to go into a currency. Some people find it a little bit harder or not knowledgeable about gold, although gold is the safest way but, uh, to, to protect yourself. But, you know, the pound is benefiting from this flight out of the dollar. Do you think it will continue to benefit? Well, eventually when a dollar really gets into trouble, all of the currencies are going to be hit. Uh, I mean, the U.K. has some competitive advantages, but it doesn't have any gold anymore or no gold to speak of. And ultimately, in a monetary turmoil, that's what you'd like to have your uh, central bank uh, holding, uh, a large amount of gold. Um, so it may benefit, but you know, if you had to choose a currency, I'd probably pick a country which would be a commodity-producing country like uh, Canada or probably even better, something like uh, Australia. Um, if I had to go into a currency. But again, my first choice would be gold and silver itself. And why doesn't the UK have any gold anymore? What happened there? Well, back in 1979, Gordon Brown decided to sell one half of the UK gold reserves. 1999. Yeah, that was put out into the market at a price of around $280, $290 on average. And it's cost the British taxpayer a small fortune. So people are calling it Brown's blunder. Um, and the remaining portion of the reserve has already been loaned out. Um, so there's really nothing in the Bank of England, is my understanding, at this moment in time. Why would you loan out gold? Well, you know, ostensibly you might want to loan it out to earn interest, just like you loan out dollars or pounds to earn interest. The problem is when you loan out gold, you're only getting 30 or 40 basis points per annum, you know, less than a half a percent per annum. Um, so the income is not great. And what you're also doing is you're taking away your reserve asset and putting it at risk, which is something central bankers should not be doing. So to me, it's quite clear that they're loaning gold in order to keep the gold market depressed by putting gold into the market and um, adding supply to the market. Because when you lend gold to the market, the guy who's borrowing that gold sells it in the market, it gets fabricated, it gets sold and dispersed throughout the world. So you're actually increasing the gold supply and it's a way of manipulating the gold price. How much gold do you think we in the UK and um, Uncle Sam both have left? Well, the, the UK vault, I believe, is empty. Uncle Sam, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's not audited um, by any independent outside third party. 
So it's a real question as to how much they're still sitting on. Uh, they say it's 8,100 tons. I have my doubts. Um, I think a lot of that gold has also been swapped. But uh, um, you know, until somebody can get in there and independently verify how much is left, we, we, we're just sort of guessing and speculating. Same thing with the IMF. They supposedly have 3,000 tons, but who really knows? Our vaults are empty. That's a frightening thought. Um, now, I lend a lot of people books, and I often don't get them back. Is there the same danger with uh, governments who lend out gold or banks who lend out gold? Is there a danger that you won't get it back? Yeah, that's the big risk. Um, the big risk is that those, the gold that's being loaned out is not going to come back at any kind of a reasonable price or come back at all even. Here's something I don't understand. If, if I lend you some money, I can understand why you would want to borrow some money. You, you're starting a new business or you need it to pay off some debts. Um, so I lend you some money and you pay me 5% interest or whatever on that money and you go out and you start your business, your business is successful, you pay me back. But I can't do anything with the gold that you lend me. Yeah, what happens is the gold gets sold into the market, uh, turned into various coins and bars and sold to individuals around the world. Uh, that's like putting new gold mine supply into the market by just bringing gold out of the vault. So how do they get it back? Well, it's, it's like any loan. You, you hope that it's going to be repaid, but you can't actually guarantee it uh, that it is going to be repaid. The problem is, is that they've loaned this gold out when the price was you know, maybe three, four, five hundred dollars $500 an ounce. The person who short that gold is at real risk. Now, speaking of loans that aren't going to be paid back, let's talk about the global credit bubble. How's America going to pay its debts? How are householders going to pay their mortgages? Well, America is going to try to pay, repay its debts by basically depreciating the, the value of the dollar. Um, if you've loaned money uh, in dollars, you're going to get dollars repaid, but they're going to be at a significantly reduced purchasing power than the amount of purchasing power you loaned. In other words, we're going to see significant uh, inflation. That's what all big debtors have done throughout history, uh, uh, all big debtor countries. They've just reduced the purchasing power of their currency uh, to try to handle and repay the burden of the debt. So surely a tactic, albeit a risky one in the coming times, is to buy hard assets with paper money, uh, with debt, I should say, to buy hard assets with debt and watch the value of that debt get inflated away and the hard asset rise in value. Yeah, if you want to speculate and you know, take it from the point of view of a trader, that's one way to look at it. Um, the safest play, though, is just to convert your foreign, uh, convert your currency, your dollars, put them into the hard assets, and don't leverage it up. There's a certain amount of risk that comes with leveraging. Of course, but I think that's one thing that's gone, one tactic that's gone on in the housing market, for example, in the UK. I mean, you live in the UK, so you know what's happened. And a great way is just to to buy a house with a big mortgage and watch the value of the house rise and the. Uh, value of the mortgage go down even though it's not being paid off the if the uh, pound is being uh, printed at a rate of 10 percent per annum then that effectively means your mortgage is going down by 10 percent per annum that's correct um, the difference though is between you know gold and your house a uh, house is a you know your shelter and, and basic to your uh, your life and your lifestyle uh, you know borrowing to buy gold is a little bit speculative 
more speculative than you know borrowing to buy uh, and your house. My my basic view is is I don't believe in debt, um, and there's going to be enough opportunity to profit just by taking non-leveraged positions, um, given the monetary turmoil we have uh, coming. I think that's going to be the safer way to play it. Don't be greedy. That's um, basically right. <laughs> This is just a subject that's on my mind this afternoon. I don't know why, but let me get your take on... I mean, obviously, the housing market in America seems to be uh, um, going the way of the pair, shall we say. Do you think uh, the UK is going to follow? Um, it's not too easy to draw the comparison. It's not necessarily that one follows the other. You know, the problems to the US um, are unique. Um, UK is benefiting still uh, because London is is the world's major financial center and I think that's going to continue for a long time you know regardless what happens to the pound as long as the UK doesn't make any decisions that you know erodes or or uh, undermines their competitive position in that regard and as a consequence a lot of people move to the UK because of the, the opportunities that it presents the US on the other hand uh, the extent of the borrowing, the extent of the overbuilding and the, uh, the supply of new homes is just truly unbelievable uh, because it's not just primary homes, but it's secondary homes also uh, that have been just built to excess and the building is still going on even though the market is turning down. This collapse, you said it was coming sooner than we think. Would you care to put a time frame on it? Yeah, I think it's going to be within 18 months. could be as soon as 12 months. But here's basically what to look for. When the gold price goes into four digits and the U.S. dollar index drops below 80, uh, I think we're in the final home stretch, and it probably will take only six months to unravel from that moment in time. Um, I think we have a good chance of seeing both of those two things occurring sometime in 2007 gold in a four-digit uh, gold price and the U.S. dollar index below 80. I mean, the U.S. dollar index is below 83 now. It doesn't have to go very far, and nor does gold have to go very far to get into four digits either. It could happen in a very short period of time if you get a short covering squeeze. But particularly gold going into four digits is significant in my view because that will be a wake-up call around the world. Uh, you know, people who've been ignoring gold or um, not focusing on the fact that gold's been in a bull market for so so many years have just um, been very apathetic toward it. But when they see gold going up over a thousand dollars an ounce, people around the world are going to start taking notice and they're going to start converting out of foreign currencies more rapidly than they have been doing. And I think that momentum will ultimately lead to the collapse in the dollar. Do you care to put an upside price on gold? What kind of heights do you think it's going to reach? Um, when I was interviewed a few years ago in Barron's, which is a financial newspaper in the States, um, I said that this was in October uh, 2003, and the gold price at the time was probably about uh, $340, $350. I said that in 10 to 12 years, it was going to uh, $8,000 an ounce. Uh, and then back in May this year, they... Um, they basically, you know, asked me whether to reconfirm my uh, my view, and I said, yeah, we're still basically on target. But my own personal view is, is I think it's going to happen much sooner than what I originally forecast because the problems are developing much more quickly. Now, it may sound silly to talk about an $8,000 gold price, but let's go back to the uh, beginning of the 1970s when the Dow Jones was uh, 800 and uh, gold was $35 an ounce. By the end of that decade... Gold rose from 35 
to 800, and the Dow was still 800 at the end of that decade, and it took one ounce of gold to buy the Dow. Back then, the dollar had more than 10 times the purchasing power than it does today. But let's just add a zero to 35 and a zero to 800. So if in, in 2006 dollars, we're saying that what happened in the, in the 1970s was gold would, had gone from 350 to $8,000 an ounce. Um, we used 35 to 800 in 1970 dollars, or you know 350 to 8,000 in 2006 dollars. Basically, I'm just saying that history is going to repeat. That's the way I see it. If you sold your gold at the end of 1979, you did very well. If you waited a year or so, you didn't do quite so well. How will we know when to sell our gold this time? Well, this time you're not going to sell your gold. You're going to spend it. Uh, and what I mean is that you're going to use your gold as a form of currency. That's my expectation because if the dollar is really um, uh, severely impacted as a currency, and that's what I'm expecting, other forms of currency are going to emerge, and I think you're going to use gold again as a form of currency. But that's also the way we should be viewing our gold. We shouldn't be looking back like January 1980 with the benefit of hindsight and saying 850. Uh, you know, that would have been the ideal time to sell. Back then, you had an alternative to go into. You could go into the dollar or other currencies. The dollar was, was um, value as currency was restored by Paul Volcker as Federal Reserve Chairman over a period of time. But he did not have the problems that Ben Bernanke has. And as a consequence, the situation today is much different than it was back in 1980. That's why I think you're not going to sell your gold. You're going to spend it. You're actually going to view it and use it as currency and the purchasing power that gold represents. So when the Dow Jones Industrials in the future can be purchased with one ounce of gold, you want to spend your gold and buy the Dow Jones Industrials. What about your gold miners? When do you sell them? Well, my view on the gold miners is it's basically just to buy, hold, and accumulate uh, and collect, different, uh, collect dividends because I think that as the gold price rise, the dividend payout of the mining companies is going to be rising as well. And if we have tough financial conditions, you're going to be wanting to generate as much cash flow as you can and dividends from mining companies of all sorts, not just gold mining, gold mining companies, should be a good way to do that. If gold is going to 8,000, where's silver going? Well, there's 10 times more silver than gold in the Earth's crust. So the ratio should be 10 to 1, just on the basis of supply considerations. Uh, the reality is, is that uh, demand is what really determines the relationship between gold and all currencies and gold and silver. And the demand for gold is much more intense than the demand for silver. Um, about 15 years ago, it took 100 ounces of silver to buy an ounce of gold, which was an unprecedented level, you know, very much undervaluing silver relative to gold. We're now back in about the 46 to, to 48 area uh, ounces of silver to buy one ounce of gold. I expect that we're going down below 20, and we may go down to even 15, which is the historical monetary relationship, 15 ounces of silver to buy one ounce of gold. But let's just assume it's 20. If it's 8,000 8, gold, divide that by 20, you're talking about $400 um, uh, per ounce of silver to have 20 ounces of uh, silver to buy one ounce of gold at those price levels. But again, keep in mind, it's not so much that you know gold is going up, um, although silver is rising relative to gold, it's that the dollar is going down. Um, the dollar is losing purchasing power.
You know, people talk about the, um, the bubble in the Internet stocks or the NASDAQ or even the stock market as a whole. But I, in my mind, the real bubble uh, has been and still is the U.S. dollar. Um, it, it doesn't have value. People are saying it, uh, are using it uh, more for historical reasons and, and matters of convenience and just accepting it on blind faith without really understanding what the dollar has become. And the fact that everybody's just using the dollar on the basis of blind faith, uh, to me, suggests that it's a bubble. And the more perceptive people around the world are, are actually starting to recognize that the dollar is in serious trouble. We read every day in the paper just about that central banks are diversifying out of, out of the dollar. And central banks are, you know, have the responsibility of keeping the monetary system together. If they're diversifying out of the dollar, we should be diversifying out of the dollar as well. And the easiest way to do that for individuals is to buy silver and gold. You say there's 10 times as much silver in the Earth's crust as there is gold, but gold tends to get stored and hoarded. Uh, much of the silver in the world has been or will get consumed. It will get used in, in various industrial products. Does that mean that the supplies of silver will diminish to the extent that we might see a smaller ratio than 10 to 1? Anything's possible when it comes to markets. I mean, there are a lot of people saying that uh, it's, it's going to go under 10 to 1, and uh, it may. Um, I'm just looking that there's such a great opportunity between now and 20 to 1, and that's a very safe play. Uh, you know, I'll reevaluate re it when we get to 20 to 1 and take a look then as to where it's going. But you have to keep in mind, Silver is different than gold. Gold is a pure monetary metal. It's held principally because it's, it's usefulness as in money. It's usefulness in economic calculation and maintaining its purchasing power over long periods of time. Silver, on the other hand, has one leg in the base metal camp and one leg in the monetary camp. It's, it's a base metal in the sense that it's used in a lot of industrial applications. Gold is not, for example. And when silver is used in these industrial applications, it disappears. But when there's money moving out of fiat currencies or when there are monetary problems and people are looking for alternative ways to hold their, their wealth, silver benefits tremendously. And on the margin, that money moving into the precious metals has a greater impact on silver than it does on gold. And that impact, that increased demand, is what causes the gold-silver ratio to decline in precious metal bull markets. Uh, one element that you have to keep in mind, too, on silver is that if governments muck it up enough so that a monetary turmoil also becomes an economic one, and that's happened many times in the past when governments get involved in a monetary crisis, then um, the demand, the industrial demand for silver may decline. But on balance, even if that demand for industrial use of silver does diminish because of economic problems, the monetary demand will still more than overwhelm any decline in the industrial demand for silver. And on balance, silver is going to continue to outperform gold. How does a government get involved in a monetary crisis, get involved in the market? So how do they do that? One of my favorite books is called uh, Fiat Money Inflation in France. It was written around 1900 by a guy uh, by the name of Andrew Dixon White. And I think you can still find you know, copies of it on the Internet or you know, copies are available to purchase. What happens is government tries to fight the debasement of the currency. They refuse to acknowledge that they're the ones responsible for destroying the currency. So they impose wage and price controls. Uh, and the currency still gets debased because the government's printing too much money. So they'll go to the next step 
of you know forcing uh, economic activity. And what happens is rather than have their goods stolen by being forced to accept a debased currency, in France they all of the shopkeepers just closed their shops and went out of business. Uh, and look at Zimbabwe today as an example. It's a perfect example how governments can muck up uh, the situation and make a monetary problem even worse by just imposing more and more stringent controls and can try, trying to continue to impose dictates on, on the, uh, the economy uh, rather than letting the market take care of the problems itself. But such a scenario is not likely in, in, in the West, surely. I mean, there's just too much vested interest in, in, in the dollar or in, and in fiat currency not collapsing. One would have thought that uh, currency wouldn't collapse in a place like uh, uh, Argentina uh, or even a place like the UK. I mean, the UK had to be bailed out in the 1970s because of what happened uh, in terms of its own monetary problems. So why is the US any special? Uh, it really comes down to just basic common sense. Like I said at the beginning, you know, the U.S. is uh, spending more than it's earning. It's borrowing more than it's saving. Those trends can continue. The U.S. is trying to make those trends continue, and ultimately the dollar is going to be the victim of trying to make something work when it, it no longer can work. You mentioned the government will print money to try and get out of its predicament. How does a government print money, apart from physically printing it, of course? In Zimbabwe, they are actually printing currency, and you're actually using pieces of paper uh, in economic activity. The U.S. is a different type of currency. Uh, the amount of paper in circulation was only 7% of M3, which is the total quantity of dollars in circulation, uh, before the Federal Reserve stopped reporting the total quantity of dollars earlier this year. But the point is it's a relatively small amount of paper money actually circulating as currency. The currency in the States is, and pretty much the Western world is deposit currency. It's money in banking systems around the world. And you don't even have to go to a printing press to produce that. You just have computer entries uh, to produce that kind of money. And that's basically what's been happening. The momentum, though, is going to start increasing as we go forward. Uh, as the flight from the dollar continues to accelerate and pick up momentum, as the demand for the dollar falls. So who prints this money? The governments? The banks? Uh, the Federal Reserve and uh, the banking system is basically, um, in the U.S., the people who print it. But then there's a lot of near money on top of it. It can't be actually used in exchange because the banks have a cartel uh, that is you know, government-protected. Uh, so, for example... Um, IBM, uh, Dell Computer, or Microsoft don't have liabilities on their ba balance sheet that can be used as currencies like the banking system does. But if you buy commercial paper in Microsoft, you might view that to be a near-money um, asset because it can be very easily converted back into uh, a, a, a purchasing medium of some sort, be it dollars or you know, some other uh, currency. You started gold money which is a form of digital gold where the gold is stored uh, in a bullion vault somewhere and you can then, eventually, you will be able to make payments with digital gold. Do you really see a scenario where Mrs. Smith goes into Tesco's and pays for her groceries with some sort of gold? Mrs. Smith may go into Tesco's and pay for groceries with a card and the transaction is actually completed and denominated in terms of gold, yeah. The merchant may receive um, British pounds um, but she may actually be having purchasing power coming out of her gold account and gold money. 
I think that's a realistic scenario, and I think that's going to happen within a couple of years. You're talking about a gold standard then? Well, gold is the standard. Um, that's why we still can you know, measure goods and services in terms of gold. That's why a, an ounce of gold buys the same amount of crude oil as it did 50 years ago. It used to be the standard for defining the purchasing power of currencies, but you know that disappeared when all of the governments around the world went off the gold standard. I put out a big disclaimer at the beginning of the show saying that anything you hear in this program does not constitute advice to buy anything. I would now like to disclaim that disclaimer for the following sentence. I advise every listener to go out and buy a copy of your book, The Coming Collapse of the Dollar and How to Profit from It. It's written by you with John Rubino. It is a very interesting and entertaining read. It puts a complex subject in very simple, accessible terms. And I've actually read it twice, and I'm sure I'll read it a third time. James Turk, thank you very much for coming on the show. And also, I should tell listeners this, I recorded an interview with James about two or three weeks ago at the Silver Summit, and I recorded it onto my iPod, and then my iPod was stolen, and James very kindly agreed to do the interview again. So uh, not only is he a sound business mind, but he's a kind soul as well. James Turk, thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. Commodity Watch Radio. With me now on the show is Bill Reed, the president of Gold Resource Corporation, a company focused on the exploration of select high-grade gold and silver deposits in Mexico's southern state of Oaxaca. Hiya, Bill. Hi, Dominic. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. How about you? Just fine, thank you. And tell us, uh, tell us where you are in the world. Well, I'm in Denver, Colorado right now, and uh, beautiful day. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk to you today. <laughs> not at all, not at all. Now, one of the things that you're always told when you're researching a, a miner is to check out the management, what they've achieved over the years. So why don't you tell us, first of all, Bill, about your track record? Okay, I'd love to. My brother and I found first company, U.S. Gold Corporation, in 1977. And we ran that company for 28 years. More importantly, our longevity is the fact that we put six mines into production. Last year, we sold controlling interest in that company to one of the most successful mining men of our era. So we believe we've left uh, U.S. gold in good hands, and it's doing quite well. And that's allowed my brother and I to focus on gold resource. And tell us about the history of gold resource, or as we say, gold resource corporation. Okay. Um, this is a private company we operated uh, for a couple of years. I was not going to take it public until we knew we had something. And um, we have a very exciting property, Oaxaca, and we'll get into that in more detail. Um, but uh, once we knew we had something from our drilling down there, uh, we decided public. And so we became a public company in uh, September of this year. And um, what we are focusing on is using our the 30 years experience in this business to maximize the value for uh, Gold Resource Corporation. And uh, tell us, what price did you list at? Uh, our IPO was at a dollar a share, and since then we've uh, gone up to a dollar ninety, and we're trading around a dollar sixty at this point in time. So we're very pleased, is uh, good, and uh, we think we have an excellent situation here. And how many shares are there outstanding? Uh, there are twenty, approximately twenty-eight million shares outstanding at this point. And options. Uh, 2.5 million options and no warrants. 
What's your market cap? It's approximately uh, $40 million at this point. Uh, have you got any working capital in the bank? Yes, we have uh, $8 million in the bank, which uh, we're going to be uh, using for, our, which we are using at this point on operation and uh, determining uh, about putting the property into production. So why don't you tell us about uh, your operations? Okay. First of all, in our business, not all ounces are created equal, and it's important to understand that. Our particular business plan, the way we focused our company, is, are on those ounces that um, uh, are low cost, and low cost ounces are paid a premium in the marketplace. So in the first instance, uh, we want to position Gold Resource Corporation in the peer group of low cost producers and that can command a premium for each ounce produced. So we have uh, focused on high-grade properties. We have three excellent high-grade properties in Oaxaca. Our flag property, Alagula, which we'll get to in more detail, uh, is the one we're focused on right now. But we have two other properties that could be in the pipeline, um, Las Margaritas, high-grade silver, and another one, El Rey, which is uh, high-grade gold. And I might mention that both those properties are close enough to Alagula that if we build a mill there, we'll be able to truck high-grade ore from those properties to that mill. I see you hold a 100% interest in both of those as well. Uh, right. In all three properties, we have 100% interest. And is your intention, if, if you make these discoveries, is your intention to sell the company on, or are you going to keep hold of it and go into production yourselves? Now, we're very production-oriented. Uh, we look at the business from a financial point of view, uh, for instance, mentioned we're uh, focusing on high grade. Any project we undertake has to have at least 100% internal rate of return, which basically means we have to pay back the capital in year. And if you can pay back the capital in one year, you can get started with uh, only four uh, years of uh, uh, reserve. And so what I'm trying to develop at this point in time is to get this property into production. So we've stated that we're looking to make a production decision by the end of first of 2007. And if that's a positive decision, then we will try uh, to put the property into production uh, by the end of 2007. So uh, we're on an accelerated program, uh, but we're able to really talk like that because of the fact of uh, we have such an asset in our uh, Alagula property. Uh, just to give you an example, we, we believe that with our very first drill hole, uh, we uh, discovered uh, a deposit. Now, we don't know how large that is at this point in time, but um, that deposit uh, is a high-grade surface uh, situation. And uh, to be able to start a mining operation with an open pit that looks like it might run about 7.5 grams gold, very exciting situation. Uh, one other thing that distinguishes this property is that we have over eight kilometers of very high grade for samples. Um, and that's somewhat unique. As a matter of fact, most geologists that we take down there are pretty impressed with that fact. And we've taken this one small area and have had uh, two drilling campaigns, and, and we have uh, discovered, like I said, a, a, we believe a deposit. And uh, we're focused on that and in that from. Uh, uh, continue drilling at this point. What about uh, the infrastructure at, at these sites, the power, the water, the roads? Well, since we're production-oriented, we, we focus on that. Our, our deposits are in our exploration program here is only two to three kilometers off the Pan-American Highway. 
So uh, access is excellent, number one. The federal power grid comes down that highway, so we have access to uh, electric. And then there's a significant uh, river that goes down that canyon with the uh, road. So we've got power, uh, water, and uh, access for a very uh, uh, nice situation so that you can start operations and not have to spend a lot of money on infrastructure. So that's very positive. And uh, how much is all this going to cost? Well, the nice thing about going after high grade is um, that you're really looking at a, a much smaller situation for ounce, for the same equivalent ounces uh, that really are valued higher in the marketplace. And, and so you think things like footprint, of how much ground we disturb is very small. We'll be talking about a either 700 to 1,000 ton per day generation, not a heap leach. So the uh, footprint is small. And then we're talking about a relatively small operation as far as mining goes, uh, so that the equipment is readily available. We're not talking about big 300-ton uh, trucks. Uh, these are smaller trucks and, and much more available. So there are a lot of very positive things in the business like we do. Uh, we can um, uh, put a property into production much quicker at lower cost. Now, our, we had an independent scope done after our first round of drilling, and we hypothetically uh, looked at a 750-ton-per-day mill, and at that point, uh, this was uh, done in 2004, the uh, capital cost was $11 million. Now, it may have gone up a little bit since then, and we will be looking at 55 ounces of production of gold per year um, at, I might say, $100 an ounce. So um, we're actually looking now, because of continued discoveries we've made on the property, about looking at a 100,000 ounce a year operation. So if it's a 100,000 ounce operation, looking more at $20, $25 million. But as I said, um, the economics will show that we can pay this back uh, with, within the first year. So it makes for a very lucrative situation. How are you going to let the market hear about this story? Well, we, um, uh, we're a relatively new story, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, but we're working hard. I, I know what my responsibilities are. We spend about a time trying to get the uh, story out. Um, we have um, uh, a situation where of our IPO money uh, was raised in Europe, and so we do make uh, trips over there and, and tell our story, and we tell it over here also. We think that as we have results from our drilling program, these are going to be high grade and the market loves high grade and it uh, will be a story that uh, will be picked up uh, quite readily before too long. Uh, what percentage do management own and, and at what price and who are the other major shareholders? Okay, well, well management uh, owns about uh, 35% um, and of course uh, we started the company. Uh, our we're very pleased with the uh, uh, caliber of our IPO investors. Most of them are funds or uh, companies that are involved in the mining business, I mean, uh, invest mining business. Uh, Hemskirk Consolidated, which is the global mining house out of Australia, was uh, very helpful with our funding when we were a private company. And they look at mine, mining properties every day. They have their own mining properties, and they invested in us because they felt like we had something special. Uh, we're pleased that uh, Gold 2000, one of the largest gold funds in Europe, invested in our company. Uh, 
these are people that look at properties every day, mining company, and uh, and they invested in us. So we're very pleased with that. You lived through the uh, the great gold bull run of the 1970s, Bill. How high do you think this one's going? Well, I think it's going to go considerably higher. I mean, I mean you're right. I've lived through quite a few cycles. Uh, uh, U.S. gold went public in 1980, at, uh, and we sold gold at $800 and sold silver forty fifty dollars and um, but then it was a long decline over the years and we've lived through uh, two dollar per ounce gold so uh, we've seen the cycles come and go but I think this one has real uh, uh, fundamentals to it and uh, you know not a real prognosticator on what the price will do but um, you know as an operator $600 gold is fantastic, especially when you can produce gold an ounce. There's real value there. And, uh, you know, the nice thing about being a low-cost producer, you really reap the rewards when the uh, price way up, which it's doing, and I think will continue to do. But equally, which people need to understand, if the gold price actually goes back down, uh, as a low-cost producer, you'll survive lows where a lot of companies uh, won't be able to. I'm an investor. I don't know how many gold exploration companies there are out there. There must be, uh, I don't know, there must be nearly a thousand or more. Why should I choose yours? Well, I think uh, in the first instance, if you look at uh, management, we've actually uh, run mining companies for a long time and survived the lows and, and done real well uh, during other periods. Uh, so management in the first instance has uh, put mines in them, so that's a good start. Uh, secondly, you really look at our asset, and if you look at our asset, uh, we have high-grade values, uh, surface samples over kilometers, which I think speaks volumes for the potential for this uh, property. And then we took one small area of these surface samples, and we discovered it at the very first drill hole. And we're on an accelerated program to uh, see if we can't get this mine into production so we present, we believe, certainly a unique alternative to uh, some of the other mining companies out there. To close, why don't you give out uh, your website address and uh, your ticker symbol and tell us where you trade. I think you've just listed in Toronto as well, is that right? No, no. Uh, we're just in the U.S. on the OTC bulletin board, and our symbol is G-O-R-O. And our website is www.goldresourcecorp.com. Dot com, and you can uh, see a lot of information there about what we've done. Bill Reed, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks very much. Well, thanks, Dominic. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Commodity Watch Radio. So with us now on the show is expert trader Michael Hampton. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Well, Dominic, good to hear from you. Michael was in London last week, but he's uh, returned to sunny Hong Kong. How's the weather there today? It's very nice today. It's um, like a beautiful late summer day here in, in, in London, as, as a nice summer day would be in London. Well, it, it's grey and grimy and wet and cold here in London. You'll be delighted to hear. I'm glad to know nothing changes. <laughs> so... Um, when you were here last week, you were talking uh, about some rules for investing that uh, you were developing or an idea you were developing. Why don't you tell us some of those rules? 
I've been trading for a long time, and I help, it helps to remind myself that uh, there are certain rules or principles that uh, I shouldn't forget. And uh, so far, I have five of those rules, and maybe I'll go through those now. Yep. The first one is everyone is a genius in a bull market. Now, my take on that is if everyone's a genius in a bull market, go look for a bull market. The point is that you want to be riding with the tide, and if the tide is moving a certain way, then uh, it's going to be easier to make money. So um, the tide that focusing on at the moment is the commodity tide, and particularly uh, at this moment, the gold tide, because it looks to me like gold prices are going up. It's going to be easier to make money trading gold and gold shares uh, in a bull market than it will be fighting uh, what might be a, a negative trend in other markets. Um, yeah, just look for a bull market. Use technical and cyclical phenomenon to conf confirm that you're in one and then ride with the tide. Makes sense. Tell us another one. Okay. The second one is anything can happen. So by that, I mean, I don't expect tomorrow is going to bring absolutely anything in the world, but I want to remind myself when I'm trading that anything could happen. So if you're in a position, you feel very confident you're on the right side. You've got to keep in mind that certain things can happen, surprises can happen, and your trade can suddenly go wrong. So you've got to have your, your eye on the exit. You've got to be ready to take action to reverse your position in the event you know, you've got something wrong. So that means is you're very unlikely to see a trade with 100% confidence that you're on the right side. And you've got to be ready for that unexpected event to, to hit you and be prepared for it. So that's the second rule. Um, the third rule um, is that the market rewards the and punishes hubris. The market rewards humility and punishes hubris. And this is a rule, unfortunately, I have to keep learning and relearning. And you know, every time I think, you know, I've worked out all years and I'm not going to get things wrong, the market throws a surprise at me. So perhaps this rule, number three, is a little bit like number two. But it done to remind you that at the moments when you're most confident and feeling most proud of your trading prowess, those are usually the moments where you overcommit yourself and take too big a thing and find you've got it wrong. So the sure things that come along really are probably the moments we've got to be most, things that look like sure things are the things most careful about. Because if they look sure to you, they're going to look sure to a lot of other people. And that might be when the herd suddenly gets it wrong. Mm -hmm. The rule is um, to gain an edge or an advantage, seek cross-market intelligence. And what I mean by that is, if you're trading gold shares, don't just look in the gold share market for the answers. Sure, it's important to do this and understand what's, uh, what's happening with the company you're investing in and how it looks relative to other companies. But you should really also be looking across into other markets, looking into the gold market. Um, you should be looking at the dollar. In fact, you should be looking at stock markets, too, because... You know, every investment is competing um, for dollars and, uh, and cents and pounds with, uh, with other investments. So if, if something else is really hot, it's capital away from where you're investing. And, uh, you know, there may be movements in other markets that suddenly make your investment look more, less attractive. So you've got to keep an eye on those other markets. And, you know, I particularly use this when I trade commodities. I mean, I do talk a lot about gold, and I do talk a lot about commodities, but the reality is I'm not really trading uh, gold, and I'm not trading silver. I'm not trading oil. I typically trade 
gold and silver and oil shares. I find actually by following the movements and cycles in the gold market, I get an edge when I'm actually trading gold shares um, because, you know, I can get myself on the right side of a tide when it's about to turn. And uh, that's when the most powerful markets are made, when you get that turn in the, in the side market right. And you may often get a clue when that's about to happen by looking across markets. I mean, I'll give you some examples, um, if I can, mm -hmm. of, of, you know, where that can be useful. I use some ratios, and I look at things like um, SPX divided by gold. And what's that telling me is the number of gold ounces in the SPX. And believe it or not, this charts extremely well. Uh, if you look at it and you various trend lines and cycles and so forth, you'll often find you'll get a very good clue as to where important support and resistance levels are. Uh, any more in uh, rules of investing? Yeah, there's one more I'd like to mention. And, you know, I keep adding to and modifying these rules, but I think five is a pretty good number to start with. So the fifth one is when it doubles, sell half. And I find this rule particularly useful in trading uh, junior mining shares. And the reason is volatile. And um, they do actually, uh, you actually do find you get a lot of doubles when you're trading stocks uh, with prices below a dollar, which I usually do quite often. I trade a lot of Canadian junior miners and explorers. You can often buy these things for uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 cents in place when uh, it's not unusual to see them double. And, I think it's a very good idea to take back your original capital um, when the stock doubles and uh, bulletproof. Um, you no longer have any risk of your original investment. I, I think that sounds like a very sensible strategy, and in fact, I use it myself. But one of the things I don't like about that strategy is if you think you've got a really hot stock and you think it's a potential five or even a ten bagger, you don't want to take any of your capital off the table. Well, you're, you're right about that, and this is a rule I break sometimes. Um, and typically what I'll do, I'll watch the stock and I'll see how much volume is coming into it as it goes up. And if it's rising on very strong volume, I will wait to take profits until the stock continues to rise, but on less volume. When you see a strong movement with strong volume and momentum, you should probably bend this rule and wait for that momentum to start to, to fade a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong, by the way, with um, with selling half your position and then trading back into it. Yeah. If the setup is right. But, you know, I do Fox have a tendency to retrace after, you know, m measured moves. For example, I think if you see a move of 50%, it's very normal in some retracement and also after movements of 100%. So you might find you have multiple trading opportunities if you take some money off the table. I see. You might find you have a better put it back in. But yes, I mean, I've had a number of stocks, um, which I'm into this year, which are up three to four to five times uh, my original cost. And I, in those cases, always taken half my uh, capital off the table. I let them run when the momentum is very strong. So those are your five rules of investing. Very good advice. I know you've got 10 uh, rules of investing in junior miners, which I'd love to talk to you about on a different occasion. Actually, it's 10 secrets of, I call it 10 secrets of investing in junior mining and exploration stocks. You know, I'd love to talk about that on a future show, but those 10 secrets are available. People can find them um, on Green Energy Investors. Um, there's a thread uh, devoted to those 10, and I'd be happy to talk about those on another show. 
Okay. Now, quickly before we uh, sign off, I know at the moment you're taking advantage of the Canadian tax sellings. Why don't you tell us first about uh, the tax selling opportunities? Sure. Uh, again, there's a threat on GEI, but I'll mention what's generally going on in two stocks that I've been I've been looking at. Um, and I'm just sort of picking two stocks at random. Um, I haven't heavily buying these yet, but I intend to be buying um, several of the stocks. I think I have about 20 listed, and I'll just mention two here. Um, and, and then go and look at the charts. Um, the first one is quoted in Canada. It's called Golden Goliath Resources. And uh, it's trading, I think it closed yesterday at 27 cents Canadian. And I've been a buyer at 25. Um, and what I'm not really crazy about on this chart is there has been a selling that I would normally see on these charts on the low. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to see this stock, um, you know, start to slowly make a low here around 25 cents before the end of the year. And I think, as I mentioned in the last show, what I'm expecting to happen here is I'm expecting people sell the stock and, and realize a loss. And um, those would be people who are making profits on other stocks and they're realizing losses here uh, in order to reduce their uh, tax obligation. And what you'll often find is people will be selling those stocks. For example, they'll be selling this stock at 25, 26, or 27. Perhaps they bought it higher earlier in the year at uh, a price of 40 cents or more, perhaps um, some time ago at even higher prices. And their taxes to balance against their profits. And then what I would expect to happen is next year the selling would dry up and people who sold the stock would come in and buy it again. And you'd see the stock move back to 35, 40 cents or even higher. So if you buy it here at 25 and you sell it at 40, you've got a you know 50% gain. Very nice. Another stock which has got a checkered history. Um, I think George Bush was one of the uh, one of the owners of uh, and directors of this company at one stage. It's something called Harkin Energy. That doesn't inspire a great deal of confidence. <laughs> I hope he manages this stock better than he manages other things. <laughs> Well, he's not a director anymore, but he was once upon a time. And they actually own uh, uh, stock in another company. Uh, but the symbol is HEC. That's Harkin Energy. Closed yesterday at 50 cents, and I've been a buyer here as it trades down towards 50. And um, people will see that, um, that that stock has shown relatively modern in recent days. But it has been a lot higher during the course of the year. Um, certainly been in the 80s, um, and I think even higher than that earlier in the year. Here at 50 cents, we're basically seeing it back at its lows, near its lows for the for the year. And I would expect um, that if natural gas prices firm up, maybe this stock would do better, and you might see it back in the 80s sometime in the first half of 2007. So those are just two stocks, and chosen almost them. There are about 20 in total. And uh, I will be putting some comments about some of the fundamentals on those stocks if people want to check out the uh, chat board. Uh, I remind listeners that Michael is just stating trades that he's making. None of that constitutes advice to do anything. Michael, we've kind of run out of time. So uh, why don't we talk uh, in the next program about your views on the general indices and why you've been buying some puts. But for now, Michael, uh, thank you very much. A reminder to listeners that they can see more of your thoughts and your writing at greenenergyinvestors.com and there is a link there click on the forum link from the mindsight homepage. michael hampton thank you very much thanks dominic nice to speak to you commodity watch radio
So I'm sat here in the magnificent offices of Fleming Family and Partners in Dover Street, just up from the Ritz in London, and I'm talking to Adam Fleming, who is the chairman of Vitz Gold, a exploration company in South Africa. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dominic. Uh, it's great to be here. So um, why don't you tell us about Vitz Gold, what you do, where you do it, and a bit about the uh, history of the company. I understand you've had a bit of good news recently. Well, just starting off with the history, if I may, uh, it's sometimes easy to know what is going to happen. It's the when that is difficult. And I went out to South Africa in 1991 to open up our family offices there, and I got involved in the gold mining industry at the same time. And at that time, I knew gold was going to the moon. Uh, when I became chairman of Harmony, who bought our little gold mining interests in 1999, actually the gold price was 30% lower than when I went out. So, as I say, sometimes it's easier to know what is going to happen rather than when. I'm now convinced that, uh, that gold is going to the stars, and uh, I was very lucky in, in 2003 to be retiring as the chairman of Harmony and to take advantage of the fundamental shift that was taking place in South Africa, gold and um, gold company ownership at that time, the new mineral charter. So if we just look at that, what was happening was that uh, there was a transfer of ownership uh, uh, under the Mineral Charter from individuals to the government, and the government said, okay, you can reapply for those assets, but 26% of your company has to be owned uh, by 2014 uh, by um, previously disadvantaged South Africans. And this was an extremely interesting time because previously the majors had built up these enormous resources um, of exploration assets which weren't core to their businesses. And uh, as a result of the political changes, they were looking to find a way of, uh, of finding a safe haven for these assets, which would allow them, under the use it or lose it rules, to uh, keep a toehold on, on these vast uh, resources. So at that time, we, we put together a, a, a team of, uh, of, uh, of black investors who bought 51% of our new little company, Vitzgold, and I, got, uh, I was lucky enough to bump into Dr. Mark Watchorn, who is one of the two or three experts on the Vitz, which is a unique geological phenomenon, uh, just, uh, just to underline, one in every three ounces of gold that's ever been mined has come out of the Vitz. And the U.S. Geological Survey reckoned that about 50 percent, one and a half billion ounces of gold, remain in the Vitz. So this is the mother of all gold regions. One and a half billion ounces of gold. That's correct. About 50 percent of the rema remaining reserves in the world exist in this, as I say, this unique geological phenomenon, um, which has uh, got about seven gold fields, uh, six of which have produced more gold than, uh, than Canada or Australia in their lifetimes. And uh, how, how much of that is yours? Well, we uh, talked to Anglo Gold Ashanti, Goldfields and Harmony. And remember at that time, not only were they under political pressure to do something with these non-core assets, but they were also suffering from a strengthening rand and a relatively low gold price. It was about $350 an ounce. So we crafted a deal whereby we acquired these assets for nominal sums. And the reason that we did the deal is we gave these majors the right, one-off right, should we establish any mines on these assets, to buy back into 40% of any new uh, mining operation. So they, they remained uh, with a, with a toehold interest in these areas. We then got Snowdens, who are an internationally accredited uh, um, uh, firm of analysts in Perth, Australia, to look at our assets. And remember, what we acquired was not only all the information uh, that the companies had acquired over the sometimes perhaps over 50 or 60 years, 
but we acquired uh, 500 kilometers of borehole data in two specific areas, the Poch Gap and the Southern Free State. Uh, and Snowden said, we've looked at these, and we reckon there's about uh, 158 million ounces of gold and approximately 134 million pounds of uranium lying within these gold reefs. So in today's terms, that's approximately uh, the sixth biggest gold resource in the world. Why don't you tell us about the management and uh, your track record there? Well, just uh, briefly, um, uh, when I was involved in running Fleming's offices, as I say, I got involved in uh, building up some gold resources. These were acquired by Harmony Gold Mining in 1999, and they were looking for a new chairman, so I became chairman, and uh, I was very lucky to uh, be aboard the company uh, with uh, Bernard Swanepoel, a brilliant mining engineer, as a chief executive, and we acquired, I think during that time, something like 26 uh, other South African gold mining groups. And so by 2003, when I retired, Harmony was, uh, was uh, the fifth biggest gold mining operation in the world. Um, so that's the background. Mark Watchorn, as I say, is, a, is an acknowledged expert on the bits. He did, uh, he did his uh, PhD on the bits. He worked for Anglo-American for 25 years, including leading their, their survey of Fitvartis Rand Gold. Um, and so we're very lucky to have a real uh, uh, Anglo-American trained geologist of note as our chief executive. And um, Vitzgold, I mean, you describe yourselves as an exploration company at this stage. What are your plans as far as production is concerned? Well, <coughs> uh, what we acquired were, if you like, brownfield assets. Uh, uh, I should emphasize, because some criticism of, Vitz, of Vitzgold is that its assets are very deep, but 40%, 40% of our assets are in the southern free state, uh, right next door to the old Harmony mine, the Joel mine, and Beatrix 1, 2, and 3 shafts, uh, which is run by, uh, which are run by, by Goldfields. And Beatrix uh, number three shaft is producing 650,000 ounces of gold a year at exactly the same depth on reefs that have exactly the same grade um, and exactly the same depth as uh, the reefs that we own next door. So uh, these aren't harebrained ounces. They are extremely well drilled, as I say, approximately $70 million worth of expenditure by the previous owners. Um, and, as I say, the reason that they sell them to us is because they get a chance to come back in if we, just, if we um, end up producing gold. On, on our drilling program, we are um, going full steam ahead on the southern free state. We've got two rigs drilling at the moment, and we're hoping to uh, uh, upgrade from inferred to measured and indicated approximately uh, 20 million uh, ounces of gold in the southern free state. So we're concentrating at the moment on doing that, and... Hopefully, we'll be able to announce in the next six to nine months some substantial upgrades from, as I say, inferred to measured and indicated, which is a much more valuable uh, resource. Of course, in the long term, we're hoping to establish uh, one, at least one mine in this area, and uh, um, we, we hope that uh, over the course of the next three years, we'll, we'll achieve that. And how about the uh, power, the water, the infrastructure at the sites? What about that? I think it's important to remember that... Um, well, to many people, South Africa is, uh, carries a bit of a health warning. Uh, two things, really, the politics and the infrastructure. The politics is that the government has now, after a great deal of consultation and, and work, has, as it were, moved onwards from the pre-apartheid uh, situation where everyone was concerned that, at the end of the day, the assets of the country were not being enjoyed by the majority population. Mm -hmm. That's now gone and done and dusted. So South Africa, in, in many respects, is further ahead than many 
other third world destinations. The second point to remember is that gold has been mined here in massive terms since uh, uh, 1890. You're looking at a country where there is um, the fourth biggest electric utility in the world. It's a highly developed infrastructure, tar roads, um, water uh, reticulation. So we're, we're not in, we're not in the, the wild blue yonder here. We're, we're dealing with, a, in many respects, a first world uh, country in terms of infrastructure. You mentioned that you've got 40% uh, black ownership and you mentioned some big uh, institutions. Uh, who are the major shareholders? The major shareholders are, first of all, three empowerment groupings. Um, uh, the, the biggest is led by a, uh, a top surgeon at uh, Pretoria University Hospital, and he's got a broad uh, group of, uh, of, of surgeons plus the Mine Workers Development Agency as an investor. The second uh, uh, major investor is run is led by Dr. Humphrey Marte, who is our chief geologist at Calgold, and he's got a group of professionals. And then we set up, thirdly, a new charity called the Witzgold Women's Trust, which is uh, designed to assist and progress women in mining, which is a hot political uh, uh, initiative of the government. They own 40% of the company. 40% of the company is owned by the original uh, founder shareholders, uh, which my family is the largest and management own of that 18%. And then, the, uh, as I say, the rest of the shares are owned by uh, institutions and individuals in Europe and the US and Canada. We've only got 25.5 million shares outstanding. Uh, so in terms of shares, uh, you know, we, we, we've been very parsimonious in diluting. Um, what about and warrants and options? No warrants and no options. Uh, our shares are valued at uh, around about $10 at the moment. That's uh, just 70 rand. They were issued at 20 rand in April, uh, so they've gone up a bit. They've been up as high as 90 rand, and uh, uh, that gives us a market cap of about $210 million. One of the criticisms of the company is that turnover has been fairly low, but that was because the, uh, the management and the founders had a lockup on their shares when we went public. Uh, J.P. Morgan took us public, and they insisted on a lockup. That lockup has now come off. So there is a little bit more turnover now in the shares, and it's probably trading about $100,000 a day now. Why don't you give out uh, your ticker symbol and uh, some information about where you trade? Well, we are at the moment quoted only on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange uh, under WGR. We also have a level one ADR in the US uh, with an OTC trading symbol of WIWTY. Um, that uh, we very much hope to progress towards a, uh, a secondary listing in North America sometime in the next six months. And the importance of that is because uh, probably 80%, 70 to 80% of the world's gold uh, investors uh, live in the U.S., are highly knowledgeable and uh, historically have been major investors in South Africa. So we want to expose ourselves to that market. Um, and, uh, and these people love the optionality uh, of uh, the South Africans. And uh, I would think our company uh, is probably, uh, they always say the benchmark DRD is 10 times geared to the gold price. I would expect our, our gearing to the gold price at this level is probably higher than that. And um, for those that want to find out a bit more about you, why don't you give out your website address? Uh, our website address is www.vitsgold.com. That's W-I-T-S gold.com. And there's a, uh, a constantly trading price there, um, and I think it's a fairly informative site. And um, finally, I'm a private investor. There's a lot of uh, gold exploration companies out there. Why should I choose yours? 
Uh, I think that uh, people who believe in gold, which I do, should uh, look to invest in a, in a variety of things. I think, uh, first of all, physical bullion, and the, and the easiest way to do that is to hold what is called an exchange-traded exchange funds, of which there are many now quoted both in the U.S. and outside. Um, and so I believe that people should have a mixture of bullion, uh, the majors perhaps who, who pay dividends and who, uh, you know, um, big names like Newmont, uh, Anglo-American, Goldfields, mm -hmm. these sort of names. And then I think every, every portfolio should have a little bit of what I call rocket fuel in it. Um, we believe we have a massive resource, the sixth biggest in the world. No one knows anything about us. We're going to change that over the course of the, the next six to nine months, both in terms of drilling and also in terms of an international listing. Um, and uh, uh, the important thing to note is our valuation. We are currently valued at uh, about $1.5 a resource ounce. If you look at our competitors in, in, in uh, South Africa, they're valued at between $10 and $20 a resource ounce. And if you look at the average international exploration company, they're valued at between $30 and $50 a resource ounce. One final point. If you went to COMEX and you tried to get a call on 10-year $1,000 gold, you pay around about $150 a resource ounce if you could find someone to stand on the other side, which, would be, which you can't, apparently. So what I'm saying to you is I think we represent the cheapest option on gold available at the moment anywhere in the world. And uh, with a pro program of drilling, we also intend to upgrade uh, the, the answers that we have so that uh, people see that we're not just promise -ware. Where do you think the gold price is going and why? <clears throat> well, um, John Hathaway of, of Tocqueville, I, I think, articulates it uh, very interestingly. Um, and remember that gold used to be uh, part of and parcel of all of our lives in the West. Uh, but for two generations, no one has had anything to do with gold. Uh, in the East, though, which is a poor part of the world getting much richer, gold has played an, a, a, an absolute fundamental part in their lives. And I believe that increasingly uh, the East will, will, will uh, become massive buyers of gold. The other point to make is that institutions historically have been big, share, big holders of gold and gold shares in times of monetary stress. In the 30s and in the 80s, when I think bonds were called certificates of uh, confiscation, over 20% of world of global investment assets were invested in gold and gold shares. Today, we're flying beneath the radar. Under 2% of world investments are in gold and gold shares. I believe without any um, um, uh, disasters or, or anything happening, people are beginning to twig that a U.S. dollar world is not uh, a, a safe world or as safe as in the past that all politicians at the end of the day will monetize debt, and the U.S. has such substantial debts, it's impossible for it to renege, so it will monetize those debts. And interestingly, it's removed M3, which was a measure of how much money is being supplied. So uh, I think it's very likely that institutions will begin to see gold as a, as, a, as a sensible alternative asset class with zero correlation to any other investment assets. Politicians can't print it. It's been money for 5,000 years. And so, therefore, I think gold will go into four digits uh, without any question. Uh, the timing is always difficult, but I believe that uh, we're, on, we're into a secular bull market in gold and, and silver, um, and indeed in all commodities. But I specifically think precious metals over the next course of the next 10 years, you will see prices so, far, so much higher than you can believe now uh, that it will become uh, the number one asset class of all investors.
is it not possible that the way the West has, has developed and uh, we've become more modern and uh, sophisticated, I use the word in inverted commas, and therefore gold has become less of an important part in our lives, is it not possible that the same process will happen in the East? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, there is, uh, I think the figure is $370 trillion of, uh, of uh, derivatives outstanding now in world markets. Uh, the world is awash with paper, and uh, the, be the benchmark rule is the more of something you produce, the lower the price goes. Uh, if you look at the, um, uh, the purchasing power of all paper currencies over the last 100 years, they've all collapsed. Some of those paper currencies have disappeared. The Reichmark, the Rentenmark, the French franc, those have disappeared, and the pound and the dollar have lost something like 98% of their purchasing power over the last 100 years. With the enormous debts outstanding right now, there is no way, in my view, that people will continue to happily hold uh, certificates uh, uh, like the dollar uh, without diversifying their assets into something that has got a, a monetary history of 5,000 years and has, over long periods of time, has held its value, and that politicians, however hard they may try, cannot actually print. Let me ask you uh, a very personal question, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want. Uh, what percentage of your wealth is in, is in precious metals? Uh, the great majority of my, uh, of my assets are in precious metals, and the rest are in South Africa and Southern Africa. So I'm a great believer in not only in gold and gold shares, but I'm a great believer in, in uh, particularly South Africa, which I think uh, has the ability to be uh, sometime in the future the equivalent in its areas to where uh, the the, the Middle East is in oil, for instance. I believe it's a, an extraordinarily rich mineral area uh, with a government that is, to be frank, uh, operating the economy in such a brilliant way compared to their predecessors. So uh, I'm afraid I'm a paid-up member of the South Africa Club as well as the Gold Club. <laughs> Adam Fleming, you've been uh, very hospitable to me and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Tom. Commodity Watch Radio. With me now on the show is Peter Dasbury, the chairman of Kazakh Gold, a gold mining company in Kazakhstan. Peter, welcome to the show. Dominic, uh, good morning. So, Peter, why don't you tell us about your company, what you do, where you do it? Uh, well, Kazakh Gold... Um uh, as you say, is a, a gold mining company in Kazakhstan. We uh, uh, came to the uh, main market, uh, the London main market, um, with a GDR listing exactly a year ago, um, and uh, uh, it's been a you know a very exciting but short history, uh, and uh, we have some extremely uh, attractive uh, assets and and significant. Uh, assets in Kazakhstan, uh, and I think uh, um, the feeling of the market is that we've you know got very exciting prospects ahead of us. Excellent. And why don't you tell us about uh, your management and uh, their track record? The, uh, the 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 company is sixty uh, percent owned by the Azabayev family, uh, Kanat Azabayev. Uh, the uh, uh, the father uh, was uh, number two in Almaty University as a uh, mining engineer. Uh, and uh, he um, very shrewdly uh, was able, through his company Kazakh Altin, 
to acquire uh, the assets out of bankruptcy in 1999 of uh, three major deposits in Kazakhstan, uh, Aksu, Bestubay and Zolombet, uh, all of which uh, are within two and a half hours driving of Astana, uh, which is the new capital. So uh, very, very accessible uh, to a major city with good infrastructure, um, which makes uh, the, the operating uh, very practical of these three uh, deposits. Tell us, why don't you tell us, what are the pros and cons or the risks of uh, mining in this area? Um, well, the um, uh, the deposits are very well known. The mining began in all three of these locations uh, in uh, in sort of in the 1920s. Uh, so they're very thoroughly explored, very well known. Um, and uh, in the Soviet time, they were uh, um, underground mined for high-grade ore. Uh, and really the sort of strategic rethink that the Azerbaijans have done is uh, to have said, well, actually, there's a lot of, a tremendous amount of, uh, of low-grade ore that can be mined uh, through the open pit method uh, and with the heat leaching and CIP technology that is now uh, available, uh, quite you know high recoveries can be achieved and very low costs of production uh, can be achieved. So um, you know this is a sort of very commercial uh, new way of looking at these deposits. Roughly, how much uh, an ounce is it costing you to get the gold to market? Uh, in the first year of uh, of uh, uh, of this year, 2006, we, our cash cost of production was $180 an ounce, so we're in the sort of bottom decile of, of, uh, of, of world gold miners. And do you see that cost going down as the mine develops? Um, I think initially uh, we, we may see it rise a little, but over time, it, it, the life of mine, uh, Wardle's uh, did uh, a review, a CPR, um, for the IPO uh, last year, uh, and they estimated that the the life of mine cash cost would be below the 180. So um, I think you know that that obviously, with the current gold price, looks very attractive. Very much so. And uh, how much resource do you have? So we've got, uh, including P resource under Russian classification, 46.6 million ounces, and uh, in B and C one. Uh, we have 13.2 million ounces, so very, very significant reserves and resources. You said that all the mines were within two and a half hours' drive of the capital. Um, how about the, the power, the water, the, the rest of the infrastructure there? Uh, yeah, uh, we've got um, uh, immediate electricity, water, roads, uh, very good roads. So uh, the infrastructure is, is there. Uh, and also you've got mining villages that have, uh, have got generations of mining families. I see. Uh, so there's a, a, a very ready uh, workforce to tap into. Do you see any political danger in mining there? As I'm sure you know, uh, President Nazarbayev uh, was here in London a couple of weeks ago. He, the, because he has been president ever since the Republic was created in 1991, um, it, it has been very stable politically. Uh, after an initial sort of uh, difficult economic time in the 90s, uh, they really have gone from strength to strength. Uh, GDP growth is running at about 9%. Inflation in 2005 was 7.6%. So in terms of the former CIS countries, that's uh, low. 
uh, and uh, huge inward investment, uh, the highest uh, per capita uh, foreign inward investment of any of the CIS countries. Uh, and obviously the, the uh, oil and gas is a, you know, a dominant factor in mm-hmm. uh, propelling the Kazakhstan economy forward. Uh, it's a huge country, the size of Western Europe, um, and uh, has uh, only 15 million people. Uh, so um, it's it's very scarcely populated. Do, have you seen them play that game where they? It's kind of a bit like polo, where they with, with a kind of sheep's. What was it called? That uh, I've never seen that, but but uh, driving to the mines, you often see them on horses with hawks on their arm, uh, and in the rural, you know, in the rural areas, things really haven't changed for a long time, and uh, you know, wonderful local customs. Really. And it's kind of the people are half Muslim, half. Russian, is that right? Yeah, about thirty percent of the population is uh, is ethnic Russian, um, and Muslim um, uh, is 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 the dominant force. And is there a lot of friction between the two people, or have mm. they been there so long that they kind of accept each other? Not at all. It's very very uh, homogenous uh, uh, sort of combination, uh, and um, uh, it's interesting that the. Uh, the sort of grandfathers and fathers, you know, Russian is the dominant language in the home, and increasingly the younger people are speaking more and more Kazakh okay. uh, as their first language. So, you know, um, this is sort of, uh, again, evidence of the emerging sort of nationhood. And what about Borat? Has he done your uh, mind any favours? Uh, well, I think, you know, to the president's great uh, credit, um, he's sort of pointed to uh, the fact that you know most people in the West didn't know where Kazakhstan was before, <laughs> and um, and at least now they can get the map out and they know where uh, where it is, and it, you know it's it's drawn tremendous attention to it. Uh, so you know he he's uh, been very positive of the publicity, which I think is absolutely right. Why don't you tell us uh, how many shares outstanding, warrants, options, your market cap? Um, we've got 47.1 million shares. Uh, the IPA was done at $15. Uh, the share price went up in the sort of first quarter on the back of emerging markets, sort of froth, and the gold price going up to over $700 an ounce. It went up to sort of uh, over $30. It settled back in sort of range $21, $23. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but obviously, you know, uh, that's a considerable increase from the IPO, um, and we've uh, uh, so the market cap is just over a, a billion dollars, uh, between a billion and one point one billion dollars, and the family, as I said, own sixty percent, so there's a forty percent free float. And how much cash have you got in the bank? And we have just raised a uh, two hundred million dollar uh, euro bond, which is sort of groundbreaking for a company uh, in Central Asia. Um, and uh, we are embarking on a a major um, capex program to accelerate production uh, from uh, the uh, market forecast uh, of um, two hundred and thirty five to two hundred and fifty thousand ounces uh, for this year um, and we 're due to spend one hundred and sixty five million dollars uh, in two thousand and seven uh, which you know is is a major step forward in creating three, four million uh, tonne CIP plants. Um, and the reason for that is is to move away from the heat leach because at this time of year it's sort of minus 30 uh, at the mines 
and uh, me. it has not been conducive uh, to the heat leeches working. Yeah. Uh, and patently with CIP, you take, the, take out that seasonality and also increase the recovery very dramatically. Okay, and why don't you, uh, as we close, why don't you tell us about um, briefly about your future plans and uh, also why I should uh, choose Kazakh Gold ahead of any other producer? In addition to, uh, you know, really pushing on with production at these three uh, key mines that uh, are operating already, we've got nine uh, exploration sites in eastern Kazakhstan, uh, one of which we've already started um, uh, open pit mining and uh, preparing a, a, a heap, uh, which we will leach in, in 2007. Uh, so uh, again, these these uh, these exploration deposits are very very well known, um, and uh, because of the, uh, the the very good connections that the family has, they've been able to acquire them at open auction, um, and uh, we see a lot of possibility there. We've also just uh, done a joint venture in Romania with Oxus um, to take the Transgold plant uh, over, and again that was at uh, in a liquidation auction. Uh, we've been able to buy these assets very cheaply and uh, we expect a high return and, and, and a cash generative investment there. Um, why should uh, people be interested in, in Kazakh Gold? Well, I think um, uh, if you look on the uh, market cap per reserve and resource ounce, we are significantly below, um, uh, below comparables. And uh, we are currently working with Wardle's uh, to convert the Russian classification uh, reserves into Jork. And I think that will give the market uh, a lot of comfort mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, really will endorse uh, the extent of our assets. So, because it's cheap and it's good. Uh, I think that's right. That, that, that sums it up well. Um, listen, why don't you give us uh, your ticker symbol and your website address if people want to find out more about you. Uh, KZG is our ticker symbol. And, Where do you trade? Uh, and we trade uh, on the main London market uh, uh, with uh, on, on, the, on GDRs. The website address is www.kazetgold.com. Peter Darsbury, thank you very much. Talk. Thank you. Well, we've reached the end of the show. Many thanks for listening. In our next programme, we speak to Jim Rogers, and it really is an excellent interview, so I do recommend that. If you've got any questions or feedback, do please email me, dominic at mindsight.com. That's dominic at mindsight.com. We're slowly ironing out all the technical problems, but I do appreciate the sound isn't always 100%, but we're getting there. Now, here's your bit. If you haven't already, go and get an iPod or similar MP3 player. Then you can upload the show onto it and take it away and listen to it at your leisure. When you're driving, running, cycling, milking the cow, whatever it is that you do. I'm Dominic Frisby. We'll see you next time.